Let me pray. Lord, we approach your word, and we pray we'd be submissive to its incredible truths. Since it speaks of your great power and judgment and your great mercy and love at the same time. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you know I saved that very last verse in the Olivet Discourse for today. And I did that for a reason, really for a theological reason as well as a, you could say an evangelistic reason because you're going to, if you shared the gospel with people, you're going to come up to this issue we're going to talk about today. Um, and mainly it's the doctrine of hell, the idea that God will exclude people from his kingdom forever. That's quite under attack in our day. It's not really new that it's under attack, but it's considered an, an obscene doctrine by modern people that makes God the most cruel and the most perverse monster of all time because there's a hell. Now, atheists have mocked it for a long time, the doctrine of hell, and very soon, very soon after I became a Christian, I read this book. It's called Why I Am Not a Christian. It was by Bertrand Russell, who back in those days, um, I mean, I became a Christian in the late 70s, but uh, in 1957, Bertrand Russell was sort of the leading atheistic guy, you know. And in 1957, he wrote this book, Why I'm Not a Christian. It was still a big book when I was a new Christian. But I wanted to test my faith. I said, you know, if this is real, if this is true, I can read the meanest book against this and survive. And uh, I did. I survived. Look, here I am. So, um, so I wanted to read it. Uh, and I became, you know, I became a Christian for several reasons, I mean, from a human point of view. One is that I thought Jesus was great, and I always thought that ever since I was a kid. But, um, and I was about 19 when I came to the Lord. The other reason was the gospel. I mean, it's, it's the greatest story ever told. It really is. It's just absolutely amazing. So Jesus is the best, most compelling human being that ever lived. And you can't separate Jesus and his greatness and his wisdom and his moral insight and that perfect balance he had between holiness and compassion, you can't separate that from his divinity. I mean, he's either God or he's a myth, you know, or just a man. But what explains him is that he really is the word become flesh, God become man. That's the only sense you can make out of his life and the things he said. So if you tie this perfect man the greatest man that ever lived, with the greatest idea that was ever to enter a human mind that God loves his enemies so much that he willingly takes upon himself their guilt and the punishment for their rebellion. I mean, that's the greatest thought a human being can have about anything above themselves, that there's a God like that. No human mind has ever conceived of anything more beautiful or more noble than that God dies for his enemies to redeem them. So you got the greatest person and the greatest story strongly supported by historical evidence. That's another whole factor there. And that's just a winner. So why would Bertrand Russell, who's a very intelligent philosopher, write a book called Why I Am Not a Christian? Well, he offers all sorts of arguments against Christianity, most of which are silly. I mean, they really are. They're just... You can tell he wasn't serious when he wrote it. He was just dashing it off because it's silly. Um, he says Jesus wasn't particularly good or wise. And the examples he gives are things like this. Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. Now, most people think that's pretty wise and noble. Even if you're not a Christian, you think that's a good principle. But he said, but we wouldn't have a legal system if there weren't judges. 
as though that's what Jesus was talking about, right? Like, it had nothing to do with anything Jesus was saying. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of arguments he makes over and over again, just taking words totally out of context and messing with them. But um, most of his stuff is like that. But there's this one criticism of Jesus that's really been taken to heart by fellow atheists or unbelievers or scoffers or mockers or whatever, and even sincere religious people that just can't deal with it. it and that's the doctrine of hell. It is, it is Jesus' doctrine. Jesus says more about hell, I mean, by far, more about eternal perdition than any other prophet or apostle in the Bible. It's his doctrine. And here's how Bertrand Russell describes it. And he's really pointing to Matthew 24 and 25. You'll hear echoes of it if you've been with us in these chapters. He said, there's one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who's really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ certainly, as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. And one does find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching, an attitude which is not uncommon with preachers, but which does somewhat detract from superlative excellence. And then he cites some of the texts we've been looking at. By the way, Jesus is not vindictive when he speaks to people, but... You'll see this again, this sort of attitude he has towards the way he reads in Jesus' person, uh, what he's thinking and what he says. Christ says, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And he goes on and on about wailing and gnashing of teeth. It comes in one verse after another. That's 24 and 25. Those are the chapters we're in, he's talking about. Um... It comes in one verse after another, and it is quite manifest to the reader that there's a certain pleasure in contemplating wailing and gnashing of teeth, or else it would not occur so often. Then you all, of course, remember about the sheep and the goats, how the second coming, at the second coming to divide the sheep and the goats, he's going to say to the goats, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. And he continues, these shall go away into everlasting fire. So obviously it's pure bias on his part to think that Jesus has a curious pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, contemplating the wailing of gnashing of teeth. He mentions it many times to protect people from that. That's why he mentions it many times. There isn't a hint of pleasure in Jesus talking about suffering in the next life. In fact, Jesus weeps over the lost. We've seen that in the Gospels. He doesn't mention that. He came to die for lost people, to take their burden on himself. So, If you just ignore the sort of judgmentalism and the goofy scoffing by Bertrand Russell, there's still this question, is he right, is he correct, that the teaching of Jesus about hell is an immoral doctrine? It's immoral, it's evil, it's actually monstrous. And many people say that today, and I'm sure you've met people like that if you talk about the Lord at all. And and of course... um, It's just true that if hell is real, it can't be immoral to tell people about it. Um, It's the greatest kindness in the world you could do for someone is to tell them not to go there, right? I mean, that's not immoral. To lose God and lose happiness forever, to warn people about that is actually the kindest thing you could do. But is the idea of hell immoral? That's sort of the question we're going to deal with today. Is it evil to believe that God punishes evil eternally? So many people struggle with that. And, you know, I've had quirks and qualms about it, and, and most people do wrestle with that a little bit. But I don't have a big problem with it, mainly because I deserve to be there. And 
I don't have to, nobody has to persuade me that I deserve to be excluded from the kingdom of God. I mean, that's just, I'm a sinner, and I know it, and, and I've sinned more than once. So, um, you know, I, I have no questions about that I don't deserve to be in heaven. What possible claim could I have on being admitted into heaven? None, right? I'm not a saint, you know, by my own virtues. I know that. In fact, the Bible calls all Christians saints. But why are they saints? Because they have the righteousness of Christ that they did not earn credited to them through God's mercy and grace. That's why they're called saints. The Apostle Paul um, called himself the chief of sinners. That's his personal self identity. He identified as a sinner. Remember what he said in 1 Timothy 1.15? It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now you know Paul was a murderer, a persecutor of the Christian church, a a hellion against Christianity, and God was very patient with him. So Christ saved the monster Paul and made him the most famous of apostles because he wants all of us monsters to know you can't get so low that God cannot save. It magnifies God's love and his grace to save monsters like the apostle Paul and transform them and turn sinners into God-worshiping, God-loving people. God loves to do that. So I am sure... One thing I'm sure of is that I don't deserve heaven. I don't have qualms about that. But do people in hell deserve hell? That's the big question. And it kind of makes sense because we live in a time when many people believe it's, it's cruel to execute serial killers or child molesters. They, don't, they, they, they have a problem with that. That's so mean. So why can't God be as tenderhearted as we are? You know, It's sort of the cultural thought. So first I want to confirm that Jesus really does teach the existence of eternal judgment and a forever condition of being away from the beauty and the kindness of the Lord. And, um, and then we'll think about it morally. So he does talk about it, and we've seen it in these two chapters and multiple times, and I'll just kind of walk you back through that real quick. Jesus talks about hell as outer darkness, as eternal fire, uh, Matthew 25, 30 Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That was part of a parable. But last week we saw in Matthew 25, 41, which was not part of a parable. It's not just a story. It's the straight scoop. Depart from me, verse 41, accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, sometimes people say, well, that's just imagery. You know, there's not a real fire. It just pictures suffering. You know, there's a problem with that. For one thing, let's say it is. Let's just pretend it is. Let's say, it, let's say eternal fire is just a picture or an image of what it's going to be like for those who are cast off. Well, an image tells you and gives you an idea of what it's like, right? So he wouldn't, he's using an image of the most pain a human being can imagine. Does anybody fear anything more than fire? I mean, that's like the worst thing you can imagine, being burned, that's the greatest pain. So he's using an image, if if it is an image, he's using an image of the greatest pain a human being can suffer. So that's not like comforting. Oh, it's not a real fire, it's just incredibly painful forever. That's, That's not... 
So it's just as bad as fire if it's something different than that. Well, maybe it's not forever. Maybe it's not forever. Maybe it's 100 years of burning and then you go away or something like that. Uh, he doesn't say that, though. But that's what people suggest. Maybe you serve your time and God unlocks the door to hell and you're free to run around in the meadows and trip along into heaven. And, but no, that's not what he says. And that's why I stopped last week at this last verse because we have to look at this verse. It doesn't allow you to, to conclude that, that at some point God comes and unlocks the door. So last week we went over this context in some detail. At his coming, Jesus will have brought before him all the nations and there he will separate the peoples, the people individually out, the sheep and the goats. We talked about that last time. We talked about the parallel structure of the judgment. He speaks to the sheep and he welcomes them, in verse 34, to inherit the kingdom. He gives the reason for that in verse 35 and 36. They ask him a question, when did we see you? Verse 37 through 39. And he explains it to them in verse 40. And then he speaks to the goats following exactly the same pattern, only it's the opposite end for them. They are not welcome. They are sent away. They are accursed. And their destination, verse 41, is the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Kind of an interesting side note there is that the kingdom the sheep inherit was prepared for them before the foundation of the world. That is incredible. While the eternal fire was not designed for men originally, but for the devil and his angels Wicked men are just added to that because they went that way. They went the way of Satan. So we have this parallel, the sheep and the goats. Welcome, depart. Blessed, accursed. The kingdom, the fire. That's the parallel. But in verse 46, he gives a summary statement of this reality and it is worded as a parallel as well. So verse 46 these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that's the end of the Olivet Discourse. That's the sentence that concludes these two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And notice the uses of the word eternal two times, two uses of it. They are parallel. And we understand eternal life as what? Going on forever. So eternal punishment is the same thing. It goes on forever. Sometimes, sometimes language is so precise you can't escape. And this is one of those examples. It's meant for you not to be able to escape. So look, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and he knows. So I accept what he says. So now we can talk about this other question. Is that moral? Is, is hell immoral? Does it make God a monster, a cruel tyrant, an inhumane? Well, he is inhumane because he's a God. He's not a human. But um, does it make him some terrible being? And the answer is no. When, when people say that, they make two really big mistakes in their mind, in their thinking. They don't always verbalize them, but this is in the back of their head when they say that. The sort of mistakes that wicked people make all the time. You have to ignore some major realities to say that hell is an immoral doctrine. First, they presume that sin and rebellion against God is not a big deal. That's really what's behind that. It's not a big deal. 
yeah, I get it, I get it, sin, missing the mark, you know, breaking a rule, everybody sins, and we're all a bit rebellious at times, aren't we? <laughs> we don't put people in eternal prison for that, do we? That's how they think. How can God be less merciful than me? I wouldn't do that to anybody. Why can't God lighten up? That's sort of the thinking there. Well, God can't lighten up because He's good. That's why. Not kind of good, not sweetie pie good. Good, like pure goodness. As good as good can get. In fact, the Bible says He is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. That good. He is infinitely good, pure, untainted in any way. And he is a being of infinite majesty and infinite glory. He's the creator. And he made this fantastic universe that you live in, that I live in. And he filled it with beauty and with life. Beauty and amazing complexity. And when he made it, it was good. It's a reflection of his divine goodness. And the crown of all of that creation was us. Human beings, mankind. We are the pinnacle of creation. We are the height. In some ways, we humans were made like other mammals that he made in that we have flesh and bodies and we have certain qualities of our our physical characteristics, creatures of flesh, but we are completely unique, utterly unique in all of creation. There's nobody like us. There's no thing like us. Only of humans does God say, I made them in my image. What does that mean? That means that God gives gives us qualities that are true of Him, that are like Him. There's certain things that separate us from everything else in creation. The closest thing to us would be animals. And we are so far above the animals, infinitely above the animals, really. We reason. Animals don't reason. We catalog and study and test and invent and form logical arguments. Human beings have been brilliant since we came upon this earth. Animals can't do that stuff. We create. We create art, literature, music. Oh, but birdies sing. Yeah, but they just sing the same song. They don't create. Animals do instinctively beautiful things, make a spider web or do something, but, then, but they don't sit there and have another spider come along and go, you know, if we did this, it would be fantastic, and they make a whole, that doesn't happen in nature. We create. They just do what they're programmed to do. We're spiritual. We are persons that can relate to God. Animals can't, don't even think about that. We can know God as our maker. We can know him and love him and serve him by choice. We don't do it by instinct, but by choice. They don't even do it by instinct. They don't know God. Animals don't have that kind of relationship with God. And we are designed to relate to him as a person because we are persons, and that separates us from the entire animal kingdom. Yes, we're tiny and weak, but we can know him and have a relationship with him. And we're moral Beings, We can't help but think in terms of right and wrong. It's built into us. Animals never think about right and wrong. And the only measure of right and wrong at the beginning and the only true measure today is what God says. That's the measure of what's right and wrong. The one who made us. So we are so far above the animal kingdom, people who have been given amazing gifts should honor the giver 
People who have been given amazing gifts should honor the giver. Isn't that just right? And yet, all of these gifts and all of this wonderful world we were given to enjoy, the Bible says at the beginning, the first two people were told to guard and keep the world he planted them in. We threw it away. We trashed God's world. We brought wickedness into his world. The first two people were not appreciative, Adam and Eve. And they gave away the store to the tempter who said to them, you can be like God, knowing good and evil for yourselves. And they bit. They metaphorically bit and they physically bit, right? They bit into what he was offering them. Pure rebellion against infinite majesty and goodness. That's what human beings did. And everyone born of them is born with their same heart. We are linked, deeply linked to our first parents. You're not only genetically similar, you're spiritually born dead in sin. What should the punishment be for rebellion against infinite majesty? What should it be? A timeout? Scrubbing the floors with a toothbrush? A chain gang? Slavery? What's the appropriate punishment for rebelling against infinite majesty and trashing his world? God says it's exclusion from his kingdom. That's what he says. We learned in verse 34 of this chapter that the kingdom was prepared for God's people, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's been the plan all along. Why would God give the kingdom to rebels who trashed the creation, who morally polluted God's good world? What could be more fit than exclusion from that kingdom? What if you had relatives living in your house? You know those kind of relatives you don't really want, but they needed to stay with you for a while. And they stayed, they stayed for years. And they constantly and joyfully destroyed your home. I mean, they do drugs openly. They actually used your furniture because they wanted to have a bonfire in the backyard and celebrate a party with their friends. They used the living room as a toilet and instead of the facilities. Start picturing it now. They constantly lied to you. They sold off your most personal possessions, which you had deep in your closet, for money so they could go to some concerts they couldn't afford to go to. And they mock you ceaselessly. They used your name as a swear word. Wouldn't you at the very least say, you can't live here anymore. Not in my house. I'm sorry. And since God is infinitely worthy of more respect than you, can't he insist on the same thing? You can't live in my house. You can't live in my kingdom which I designed to be free of wickedness. Hell is exclusion from the kingdom. Sin is a big deal. Now maybe to some of us it's not a big deal because we're so sinful ourselves. We can't see it from the standpoint of pure goodness. I know I don't see my sin as clearly as God does, but I know I'm a sinner. And I think only the Holy Spirit allows me to even grasp enough of it to know that I desperately need a Savior. But only rebels think rebellion is not a big deal. The people they're rebelling against always think it's a big deal. Only sinners scoff at the idea that they should be held accountable for sin. Well, what do you mean hold me accountable? 
but exclusion is what they deserve. It's just basic justice. So hell is only monstrous if people don't deserve to go there. But they do. I do. The most important theological book on salvation in the Bible is the book of Romans. It's a masterpiece, a sustained explanation of man's problem and God's solution. Because it's foundational for biblical anthropology, or what we might call the human condition, um, I want to think about that a little bit. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18. It's a pretty familiar passage, but I want you to think about it in one certain aspect. Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Just stop right there. Now, God is so good, remember, that he hates evil. His, his wrath here, his just anger is against all sin. Just like your anger is against all corruption and evil and murder and uh, uh, wickedness, that things that you regard as horribly evil. God's wrath targets these amazing rational creatures that he made who have morally polluted his moral universe. And you know what they do? They suppress the truth. What truth? That there's a God and there's accountability to him and that he's a moral being. Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. It's so clear that there's a God who made everything. He's a moral God because we're moral. Where did that come from? Because we're made in his image. It's so clear that all that's true, that we're accountable to him, that there's no excuse. So what about somebody that's never heard? Everybody knows this down inside. Everybody knows. It's so obvious from creation what God is like. It, is to, it has to be actively suppressed information to deny God's eternal power and divine nature. There's no excuse for not acknowledging it. Human beings know whose house they're polluting. They know whose house they're wrecking. They know. Here's the key. Verse 21. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, empty in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Did you see the word exchange in there? It happens a couple times. An exchange happened. Humankind made an exchange. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for idols. They exchanged the truth of God for lies. They rejected his word, just like our first parents did. 
They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And men still do all of that. It might look a little different in sophisticated Western nations like ours, but it's exactly the same heart. We don't build idols to worship very often, but we make idols in our mind of what God is or what religion is or what truth is. We do that all the time. Now, let's talk about exchanges. When you make an exchange, you're choosing one thing over another thing, right? You're choosing something over something else. You're making a preference. I prefer that. I will trade this for that. I like that. I want the other thing. I value that more, so I will make an exchange, right? John Piper said it very well. I'm just going to read what he says. Everybody does that with God. We look at his glory. We look at his power. We look at his wisdom. We look at his beneficence, and we don't say thank you, and we don't say you are great. We say, I'm going to trade you for something that I really want. That is why hell exists, he says, because it is an infinite sin. You can't do anything worse. There is nothing worse that can be done. Sins are simply expressions of this. Sins get all of their evil from this. That is evil. What we call evil, hurting each other, that is just little expressions of that. All the rottenness that we do to each other is deriving its rottenness from the ultimate rot of exchanging God. Saying to the infinite creator and the most beautiful reality in the universe, I don't want you. I don't prefer you. You're not attractive to me. You're not satisfying to me. I get no pleasure from you. This is my desire. This is my treasure. That is evil. That is the meaning of evil. And all other evils get their evil from that, including the evils of money, sex, and power, which Paul is going to make crystal clear. Unquote. That's John Piper. It's an eternal sin because apart from God's saving grace, that's what men choose. They exchange God for sin. And that's the human condition. And men don't see it. They think it's not a big deal. It's the highest crime because God is infinitely precious and worthy and men deny him that. He's not precious to them. So the greatest sin is rejecting the highest good and saying, oh, I'll trade this highest good for that. People believe rebellion against God is no big deal because they've exchanged God for something completely worthless apart from him and they prefer that so they don't see it as a problem. So hell is not immoral because men trade God away for nothing. It's fitting they reject the very source and fountain of goodness to make gods of far, far inferior things. There's another reason hell is not immoral. People who claim hell is immoral seem to believe that people stop sinning in hell. They, they picture it this way. Everybody in hell is going, oh, I'm so sorry. I really am sorry. Oh, I want to worship you. Oh, I love you. I, I, I don't want to be here forever. How can you put me here forever? That's not what happens in hell. That's not what people are doing. They don't want to be there because it's horrible. But we don't have any evidence that people in hell are repentive. Haven't you known people in your life who hate punishments but don't repent? Do you have any children that do that? (laughs) 
Revelation 16.10 gives us kind of an example in this world when at the end of the age when God is pouring out his wrath on the world and all these judgments. It says, people gnawed their tongues because of the pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. That will be the condition of people in hell. It's Revelation 16.10. Divine punishment doesn't bring repentance It just makes people hate God. And that hatred can last forever. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said, there's an eternity of sin in man's nature. They sin forever. And if they had a do-over, they would make exactly the same exchange they made before, exchanging God for anything they fancied. If you let them out and said, hey, that was enough punishment for you, They would, right away, they would exchange God for some other fancy of theirs because that's their nature. They still want to be God and serve gods of their own choosing, anything but God, the real God. Hell doesn't redeem people, doesn't have that effect on people. They're not going to want to give God his due at all. They hate his holiness, they hate his justice. Do they have regret? Yeah, but not a broken and contrite heart kind of regret. They have a regret that they're there. And that's what C.S. Lewis meant when he said that that hell is locked from the inside. Because people don't want to be there, but the alternative is to be with God, and that's the very thing they never wanted. People don't stop rejecting God in hell. They continue to do it forever. So, let's kind of put this together. Rebelling against God is a very big deal. When we exchange the infinite perfect creator for cheap, fleeting fancies, that's a big deal. And secondly, people keep on sinning in hell. They don't stop sinning in hell. You've got to remember those two things. Third, and I suppose I should just add this third point, it's, it's very hard to escape the fact that in the Bible, the soul is immortal. It goes on forever. That immaterial part of us was made to go on forever. Our bodies fail, but the spiritual dimension of man goes on. So our essence... Our personhood doesn't disappear when we die. Jesus on the cross, what did he say to the thief? Today you will be with me in paradise. He's going to go on. He's been crucified, this poor slug next to Jesus, and he's going to be with him in paradise. He's going to be awake. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, and they're both conscious, aware, existing after they die. One's in paradise, and the other, Jesus says, is in Hades, and he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, the Antichrist and his false prophet, who are men, are thrown into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And a few verses later, it says, all the wicked dead are thrown in there with them. The Old Testament says it too, Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel does a parallel just like Matthew does like Jesus' words up here in verse 46. It's exactly the same. One goes this way and one goes this way. They're both eternal. So the immaterial part of us lives on. It has to live somewhere. It has to be somewhere. If it's an eternally unrepentant, immoral, wicked soul, it can't be in heaven. It can't reside in God's house. It can't experience the gracious favor of God. The rebellious soul has rejected all of that, turned away from it. So, 
Sin is a big deal. People continue sinning in hell. Souls are immortal. And the place God decided to put them is where he'd never intended for human beings to be. They were to be in his kingdom. But he created hell for the devil and his angels, and so they're added to that. That's where they go. Finally, I think to think properly about all of this, we have to look at the cross of Jesus. The the unspeakable torment of the crucifixion, infinitely compounded by the unknowable agony on our parts of what it means to bear the sin of the world. In the garden, you know, just before Jesus was arrested, he cried out to his father that this particular cup of suffering, he says, let it pass from me, that wants it to pass from him. If there's any other way, he says, any other way, let this cup pass from me. And in that plea, you can hear the seriousness of sin, the consequences of sin, because he's being asked to bear it. The cost of it, the proper punishment, he recoils from it in his humanity. There wasn't another way. There's no other way to honor God's justice and to redeem sinners than to go to the cross and have God's wrath poured out on him. The cross was the only solution. And Jesus knew he came. He said himself, I came, the Son of Man has come to be a ransom for many. He came to be an atoning sacrifice. But when the time came, his human nature just recoiled at the thought of experiencing the wrath of God. Just facing it just weighed him down. But he prayed, and he came through at the end and said, not my will, but yours be done. I'll do what you want me to do. I mean, he came to do that. God's will is to save sinners, wicked men, evil people, to save them. And the wrath of God was poured out on him. The penalty for every sin of thought, word, and deed in all the centuries of human existence since the fall of man was laid on him, all of it. He paid the debt for sin, so we will never have to pay it. And if we forsake our rebellion and embrace him and surrender ourselves to him, he's paid the penalty for us. That's what it takes to have life. We have to say, I surrender. You are the most worthy and righteous king, and I have abused you, God. I have sinned against you multiple times for many years, but I've heard of your love for me and I accept it, I receive it, and I bow my knee happily before your son who bore the punishment for my sin. That's how you become saved. Salvation is not, okay, the torture of hell, it's just so much, I can't unbear it. God, your threat is too great, I submit, you win. Okay, that's not saving, that's not a saving heart. That's what unbelievers actually think salvation is. They think that's what Christians feel in their hearts. All right, this threat of hell is just too much. I can't bear it. Um, you're, you're too rough. I, I submit, you win. That, that's what they think we, we believe or how we respond to God. Salvation is this. God, you are just in your judgments. I am truly guilty. I am deserving of your condemnation. I deserve to be excluded from your kingdom. I know I don't belong, but I'm awed by your saving love that I see in Jesus who paid my debt. Receive me and make me new and I'm yours. And God saves that person every time. 
Can you see a difference? I hope so. So the bottom line is the kingdom is for the king's people. He invites you to become one of his people, to let Christ's sacrifice cover all of your sins because he loves and saves all who come to him for mercy. And he opened the door to the kingdom by suffering in your place, accepting the burden of hell for you. Nobody can believe for you or repent for you. You have to come. You have to want him. If you want to know more, come talk to us. Let's pray. God, how holy you are, how perfect in righteousness and goodness. You couldn't be God and be anything less than perfect in your righteousness and goodness. You couldn't be good if you didn't punish sin, even eternally for those who sin eternally. But you have loved your enemies. You have given all for their salvation and redemption. Lord Jesus, you undertook unimaginable grief to purchase our salvation. Rebels like us, we can only worship in awe and have our hearts filled with gratitude. We pray in your name, amen.